The following audio is from Emmanuel Baptist Church. More information about Emmanuel is available at our website, www.myemmanuel.net. Amen. It's been wonderful to worship with you this morning, and now we turn our attention to God's Word. If you have a copy of the Scriptures, I'd love for you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. You also find a Bible right there in the racks in front of you. We've been studying the book of Hebrews uh, from chapter 1. We've been going through verse by verse, concept by concept, and now we've come to the last chapter, and just this week and next week, and we are finished. This week we're going to look at the same passage that we looked at last week. Last week we looked at the passage beginning in verse 7, and we looked at God's expectation for spiritual leaders. And those of you who were with us, just to remind you, he didn't use the word for pastor or elder or deacon. He used a much broader brush. He used the word for leader. And one of the things that we discovered in studying the passage is there is a place where each of us have a a sphere of influence. Each of us have some people in our lives who maybe don't know the Lord or people in our lives who are who are babes in the faith, or people in our lives who still need to grow. And we have the chance as spiritual leaders to grow them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, to lead them to the Lord. And so each one of us can function as a leader. And so we looked at that expectation of leadership. This week we look at the same passage, but now we look at it through different eyes. This week we look at it in terms of fellowship. Sometimes the word fellowship sounds funny to our ears. We know the word leadership, but there's also a biblical concept of fellowship. And that is that each one of us, while we may be leaders in a certain sphere of influence or a, a circle that we have, we are also called to be followers, followers of Christ and followers of the leaders that God puts among us. We are called out. We're the ecclesia. The called out ones, the word ecclesia in the Greek means the the church. And and in church life, God places certain people among us. We read it in Ephesians chapter 4 and Romans chapter 12. And among those are our pastors, elders, shepherds, deacons, and, and we are called to follow them. So we discover in Hebrews 13 that God also has expectations for spiritual followers. And, in the, and then in the broader theme of Hebrews, this is how we finish the race well. Remember uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. There's a great cloud of witnesses. We're running the race. We are, uh, we're right here on the, this is our stage of time in the realm of history. All those who have gone before us, who are in heaven, they are sitting in the stands. They're cheering us on. How is it that we will finish the race of faith well. Part of it is how we choose to follow. Find Hebrews chapter 13. Find verse 7, and we'll begin right here. The Scripture says, Remember your leaders, and we know from the context that these are not uh, governmental leaders, because he says, Those who spoke to you the word of God. And consider the outcome of their way of life, and imitate their faith. So the first thing that I would say to us as followers 
is that it's not simply the hearers of the word, it's the doers of the word that see a dramatic change in their lives. And so you and I, uh, we sit uh, in situations like this where I'm teaching the word or a life group where someone else is teaching the word and we hear the word of God. But when we hear the word of God, the Holy Spirit doesn't impart to us an understanding of the word of God so that we'll be smarter. He imparts to us an understanding of the word of God so that we will obey it. And that's the work of of teaching and preaching. And when we receive that as followers, we are to apply that to our lives. Each week, uh, when the three services are over, and I get a chance to talk to different people, almost every week someone says to me, man, that sermon was just for me. Or somebody might say to me, pastor, you've been reading my mail? Or they use some kind of humorous phrase to say, man, God really spoke to me today. And over the years, what I've come to realize is while I use the everybody hears the same words, and we all read the same passage, and I preach the same sermon, the Holy Spirit of God does an incredible miracle. And since it happens every Sunday, it's, it's probably the miracle that's the most common. I, I know that's an oxymoron, because if it's common, it's not a miracle. Miracles aren't common. But in reality, it is. Each week, one passage, one sermon, but the Holy Spirit takes it, and applies it to each individual and separate heart. He knows your journey. He knows your experiences. He knows the prayers that you've prayed this week. And he speaks to you from one sermon. How does that happen? Because I'm so smart? No. Couldn't, I couldn't do it if I tried. It's because the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to discern you, dividing between the soul and the spirit. Because the Word of God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because the Word of God lasts forever. The flower fades, the grass withers, but the Word of God lasts forever. It's because the Word of God never returns void. And so recognizing this as the followers of Christ Jesus, we are called to be doers of the Word of God. How does that happen? Well, there's actually a methodology here. The second half of verse 7 says the way we do that is we consider the outcome of their way of life. Now, the there is our leaders, and we imitate their faith. So the the second thing we see here, if we want to grow in faith, is that we place ourselves under the a spiritually mature mentor, and we imitate their faith. And what I would say to you this morning is that that imitation of a spiritually mature person is your most direct path to spiritual growth. Now, uh, God created us. He designed us. So we shouldn't be surprised that imitation is the way that we learn the best. And it's the way we learn everything, not just the Word of God. Uh, Several years ago, I called this guy. I said, hey, I need to stop by and see you. He said, yeah, stop by the house. I'm working on the truck. I'm here. So I pulled up to the house. When I got there, sure enough, he's working on the truck. I walk up in the driveway and uh, sticking out from underneath his truck are these two legs well, two feet, too. They were attached to the legs. And uh, they're sticking up, and I see him. And as I get closer, as I get right up to him, just on the other side of them, I see two more legs that are about that long. So I squatted down. He's still under the truck. I said, hey, how you doing? And when I look down there, I can see him. And sure enough, he's, he's turning on a wrench. He's cranking a wrench. And next to him is this two-year-old son who's just laying there and going like this with his hands. 
But what's he doing? He's imitating his dad. He's probably going to become a great mechanic. Because as he gets older, dad's going to put a tool in those hands. And he's going to say, righty-tighty, lefty-loosey. He's going to learn all that stuff, right? How do we learn? We learn by imitation. So it is in faith. In fact, we discover that the Apostle Paul says one time in the New Testament, hey, if you'll just copy me, you'll be fine because I'm copying Christ. So this is how we learn. Now, you've heard me say this before, but here's a place for me to say it again. If you are the most spiritually mature person that you know, you're in big trouble. There's so many of us, kind of, we kind of think, well, I've arrived. No one's, it, you need to find a person who knows God's word, knows it better than you, who loves God, they're living for God, and they love you, and you place yourself underneath them, and you imitate what they do, and that will grow you much more rapidly in the faith than if you just try to do this on your own. And so that's the second thing that we read there. Verse 8 is the verse that we looked at last week. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And remember in this passage that speaks of Jesus, but the point is that we might do it consistently. And then he says this in verse 9. Now don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings. He's talking about religious teachings, uh, uh, spiritual beliefs. For it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. This is why sometimes you'll read or hear someone say, what we teach and believe are the doctrines of grace. And, and so grace is how you know that a, that a doctrine's true. If, you, if you're reading a doctrine, if there's a direct line to the cross of Christ, you're, you're probably going to be good. But as he compares that to other strange doctrines, he says, don't, don't be consuming foods. And he's using the word foods here because our, our soul needs to be fed, spiritually speaking. Not by foods which didn't have any benefit for those who are devoted to to them. It's a funny thing about uh, modern America. We, we think that there really aren't any uh, heresies. We think that they're, they're just different beliefs, and they all lead the same way. And as long as you are sincere, the word here, devoted, as long as you're devoted to them, you're okay. But what we see as spiritual followers of Christ here is that being devoted to a false doctrine doesn't keep it from being false. What, what you've got to understand is that this, this permeated myth of our present American culture is that as long as you're sincere, it's probably okay. So I believe one thing and you believe something else, and maybe what you believe is completely opposite of what I believe, and yet somehow we believe, even though these are opposites, it's okay as long as we're sincere. I, I read about uh, the uh, spiritual beliefs of Goldie Hawn this last week. What it said about her is that she was a Christian scientist Buddhist who was a Jesus freak. I, I wonder if she's ever read any of those things. They, they don't go together. You can't believe mutually exclusive truths, and because you're sincere, make them both true out of your sincerity. They're either right or they're wrong, no matter 
how sincere you are. You can be sincerely wrong. Let's take the case of a suicide bomber. I think we would all admit that there's no one on the planet more sincere than someone who would kill themselves, blow themselves up for their cause in killing other people. That's a lot of sincerity. But they're completely wrong, and we all acknowledge that. We know that. So let's be honest about the faiths uh, and the, the heresies and the cults all around us. Just because people are sincerely devoted to that belief system doesn't make it right. It's really important this time of year, isn't it? This time of year, we're coming to the place where our worship of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is directed at his advent, at his intervention in the history. And he came because why? He came to preach good sermons, to heal people, to model how to be better? No, he did those things, but that's not why he came. He came to die. He came to be the atonement for our sins. Why? Because there was no other way for us to get to heaven. No other way unless Jesus comes. And so Jesus himself would say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one, can I, can I just add a parenthesis? No matter how sincere they are, gets to heaven except through me. And so this is what fellowship of Christ really looks like. Well, last week when we came to this portion of the paragraph, I said, we're going to skip over this. I'm going to teach it next week. So here we are, beginning in verse 10. So um, verse 10 says, Now we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. So let me remind you, those of you who have been with me the whole study, uh, this will make perfect sense, but let me remind you that the title of the book is Hebrews. So he's writing to Jews, and every illustration he uses is from the Old Testament. And so if you understand that, then, then it can make sense to you. So when he here speaks of the tent in verse 10, the, when he says there's an altar and those who serve the tent have no right to eat, he's speaking of the Old uh, Covenant, the Old Testament. Moses gave instruction, and uh, there were certain animal sacrifices that the priests were allowed to uh, take the meat from those sacrifices and feed their families. But there were sacrifices in which animals represented sin, the sin offering. The high priest couldn't eat that. In fact, what they would do is uh, someone would bring an animal, let's say, uh, let's say a lamb or a goat. They'd cut the throat, catch the blood. The priest would take that blood into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle that on the Ark of the Covenant. Well, the animal would, of course, die. Well, what did they do with the animal? Well, the Scripture says, look at the next verse. The Scripture says in verse 11, For the, the bodies of those animals whose blood was brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, those bodies of those animals are burned outside the camp. Now, the reason it's called camp is because in the wilderness, the tabernacle was a tent, the children of Israel were wandering around the wilderness, so everything was mobile. Everybody lived in a tent. God lived in a tent. That was the tabernacle, and so it happened outside the camp. Now, the writer of Hebrews is going to, once again, bring in how Jesus fulfills all of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. What does he say? Verse 12. 
So Jesus also suffered outside the gates, talking about now they're in Jerusalem, so the gate of the city, in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. It's really incredible. When we think of the Old Covenant, and we think of every detail of it, even what we would call minutia, Jesus fulfills every single part of it. In the Old Covenant, a goat or a lamb. And then that body, the blood was shed for atonement, and then that body was taken outside the camp, and there that body was burned because that body had the sins of the people on it. That's why the priest wasn't allowed to eat that particular animal. And so Jesus Christ was crucified outside the city, outside the gate, because he had the sins of the world put upon his body. He said, this body will be broken for you. This blood is shed for you. And Jesus fulfills all of the old covenant perfectly in that way. The next verse says, therefore, verse 13, whenever you see a therefore, it's going to be application. Okay, so what does this mean to us? Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the same reproach that he endured. For here on earth we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is yet to come. Here's the the instruction for us as followers of Christ. We We are to remember that we live outside the camp. The, the way he uses it here for application is outside the culture. We, we don't live, we're not a part of that culture that doesn't know Christ. We live outside the culture, outside the camp. And that's not our city because we have a city that's yet still to come. That city was named back in the last chapter, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. It's called the New Jerusalem. So here's what he's reminding us of. Don't get attached to the stuff here on earth. Don't, don't, don't start to think, oh, I need to try to belong to this culture. The culture rejects Jesus. They reject Christ. They reject the Word of God. That can't be your culture. That's not where you live. You live outside that culture, outside the camp, and here you bear the reproach of Jesus. People say, how come you're staying outside the camp? You say, I belong to Jesus. Oh, you're one of those people. Oh, you got religion. Whatever it is they're going to say about us, that's true. And we don't make this our permanent resident. You know, Billings isn't your hometown. The New Jerusalem's your hometown. The New Jerusalem is where you're called to. Here, you're just passing through. Here, we're ambassadors for Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. Here, we represent Christ, but the New Jerusalem... That's where we belong. I want you to think about the New Jerusalem just for a second. You know what? There's no mill levies there. There's no potholes in the street. There's no snow removal, and there's no garbage pickup, because you don't need either one. In fact, there's no police department there, because there is no sin there. There is no crime there. There are no first responders there, because there's no accidents there. There's no death there. Think about it. Think about what it is. No fences between you and your neighbors that you need any longer. In fact, there is no city council there. Say amen. Because we have Jesus. 
He's the mayor, the governor, the president, the king. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And your place is not here. It's there. And followers of Christ remember that. Now, he started talking about this old covenant. He started talking about sacrifices and the, 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 the animal that was burned outside the, the camp. So he sticks with this idea of sacrifice when he comes to the next thing that he wants to say in verse 15. Through Christ Jesus, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. And then he tells us, what is that? Well, that is the fruit of our lips that acknowledge the name of Christ, that acknowledge his name. Now, maybe you've heard uh, uh, Eddie or another worship leader talk about, this is our sacrifice of praise. Well, this is where, this is where it's from, right here in Hebrews chapter 13. And as we think about this, we, we see three things. First of all, our sacrifice is a living sacrifice. The, the animal that shed its blood to try to cover sins in the Old Covenant was going to be a dead sacrifice. Jesus Christ gave his life. He was the one who died that we might live. And so we offer ourselves to Christ as a living sacrifice. We died with Christ that we might, through his resurrection, live with Christ. Now, there is a sense, there's one sense in which living for Christ is harder than dying for Christ. If you just just gird up your loins and you get all your gumption and all your righteousness, and in one moment you're willing to die for Christ, that's only one moment. But living for Christ, that's today and tomorrow and the day after that, and the week after that, and the month after that, and the year after that. It's 24-7, 365. Living for Christ. It's a continuous sacrifice unto the Lord. So we have a, we're a living sacrifice, number one. A sacrifice of praise that is continuous, number two. And proclaims the name of Jesus. So it's not just singing songs here for a few moments on a Sunday morning. It's that our lives, when people look at our lives, they see Christ Jesus in us, and we fulfill this admonition as followers of Christ to be a living sacrifice. The next scripture says then that we are, in the the sense of that living sacrifice, we, we are not to neglect, verse 16, to do what's good. We're to share what we have for such sacrifices. See, I'm still using the same theme of sacrifice. Such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Uh, How many of you would just, uh, by the uplifted hand, say, you know what, one of the goals of my life is I want to please God. How many of us is that? That's one of my goals. I want to please God. When, When this life is over and I stand before the Lord, I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what I want. So how is that achieved? Well, followers of Christ understand that we don't neglect what is good and that pleasing God is more than not doing the bad. It's also doing the good. Have you ever ever thought about this? I mean, it's Christmas time, so let's think of it this way. We think this is the naughty list, doing the bad, and this is the, the nice list, doing the good. Even Santa, we think of him that way. 
in terms of our sinfulness, there are two ways to sin. One is called a sin of commission or commission. That is things I commit. So I can lie, I can cheat, I can think evil thoughts. This is doing the bad. And so many people, their Christian life is simply relegated to this half of the Christian life. And so they grit their teeth and they they clench their fists and they just go, I'm not going to do the bad today. I'm not going to do the bad today. I want to please Jesus. I'm not doing the bad. Uh, My experience is that if that's your religious paradigm, you're, you're not very fun to be around. Because everything is hard, and you're grinding it out. And, 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 and when people are around you, are like, don't bother me, I'm not being bad. In fact, get away, I might explode. That doesn't, that doesn't draw the world to Christ, does it? What we discover in Galatians chapter 5 is that we won't fulfill the lust of the flesh if we walk in the Spirit. There's another way to sin, and that is the Scripture says, for the one who knows to do good and doesn't do that good, that's sin. So it's not just about not doing the bad, it's about doing the good. If you have it in your ability to bless someone or care for them or do good to them, we're supposed to do that. And we can do that without gritting our teeth, clenching our fists. It's just it's the natural flow of the love of God and the joy of the Lord. You can see this in earthly marriage. If a husband and wife really love each other, they don't really have to sign a contract that says, you won't do this and you won't do this and you will do this. And it doesn't make for a very good marriage. But if you love your spouse, you naturally do the things that bless them. And so if we love Jesus, we naturally do it. And what comes out is joy and peace and patience and love, goodness and kindness And isn't that way better than, don't bother me, I'm following Jesus. And so legalism and unforgiveness and bitterness and self-righteousness, because I am not doing the bad, becomes the belief of many people. So the scripture says we are to focus on the good and every chance we can do that. In, In specificity, hey, I didn't even know I could say that. The scripture says there's one part of doing good. Verse 16. Don't neglect to do good, but here's the part he wants to talk about in particular. Share what you have. Followers of Christ learn to share what they have. When you give, you prove that you understand that God owns it all. Each week when we take up the offering and you have the chance to give your tithes and offerings, uh, that moment isn't really because God needs your money. In fact, it's not at all that. It's you demonstrating that you acknowledge that you know he owns it all and you can trust him. And when you learn to give what he's instructed to give, he can give you more. And those that really grow in their Christian life, they get this. It's a crazy thing to me that so many Christians trust Christ with their eternal destiny, but they can't trust God with their money. 
And that same God says in Malachi chapter 2, speaking of our tithes and offerings, he says, trust me and test me in this. And if you won't give, if you'll give to me, I will open the floodgates, the windows of heaven, and I will pour out on you a blessing too big to receive. Do you know what most Christians believe? They believe that, uh, that their income is a zero-sum game. That is, that there's only so much money. I've even had people say, I'm on a fixed income. And I would say, do you belong to Jesus? Yeah, then you're not on a fixed income. Because it's not a zero-sum game to him. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul there, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, God says, I will meet all of your needs according to my riches and glory in Christ Jesus. How much riches and glory in Christ Jesus is there? Well, the answer is, it's infinite. God isn't restricted. It's not like it's not like at the beginning of time he printed so much money and then when he runs out, oh, sorry. He he's got more to give, and the more you give, the more he will give. Luke chapter 6 says, "Give, and it will be given unto you." Good measure pressed down, shaken together and running over. What triggers the whole thing? When you give, you give, and it'll be given unto you. So this is how it works. You give, and then when you do, God gives it to you. So you give to get, to give, to get, to give. And as long as you give to uh, give to get to give, you'll get more. But if you just give to get, you won't get anymore. Get it? Because you, you plug it up. You stop it up. You forget the reason that he gave it. So if you want more, give more. And it's a part of growing in that understanding who we are in that Christ-likeness. Well, uh, very quickly, two more points in two minutes, so it's going to be fast. In verse 17, he says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account, literally to give an account to God. And let them do this with joy and not with groaning, because if you're you're not following them and it's hard for them, then there's no joy in that, and that would be no advantage to you. The instruction here is to obey your leaders and submit to their authority and, and to do it in a way that blesses them. And I, and I really, this could be a whole sermon and I've got one minute for it. Let me just say this. Submission is the evidence of the character that a Christian is becoming like Christ. If you want to become and take on the character of Christ, the, the, the crux of the matter, the, 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 the tip of the spear is submission. Philippians chapter 2 says that Jesus himself submitted himself to God, being obedient. How obedient was he? Even unto death. That's what it says in Philippians chapter 2. So you and I are to grow in this idea of submission. The problem is we hate it. We hate being submissive to somebody else. Now, again, I don't have time to preach this, but I could prove this in a million ways. If I took you right now, if we all just went and peeked through the window at the three-year-old classroom, what would we see? We would see three-year-olds who hate being submissive. Now, a three-year-old doesn't say, I really don't like the uh, paradigm or the theological concept of submission. That's not what a three-year-old says. The three-year-old says, you're not the boss of me. That's what a three-year-old says. He doesn't want you or a teacher or another kid or anybody telling them what to do. Where does he get that? From his grandparents. Right? So 
So here we have it. We have this sinful bent that doesn't want to submit. But biblical followership is obey your leaders, be submissive. You say, well, what if they're wrong? They have to give an account to God. God, God's in that business. He takes care of that. He does that work. And you can trust them. Last point. It's not last because it's insignificant. It's last because it's the most significant of all. Verse 18. And pray for us, the writer says, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience and we desire to act honorably in all things. And I urge you the more. That means pray all the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner rather than later. What's the last expectation that the Lord has of Christ followers in the church, the family of God? It's that we pray. Scripture says we're to pray without ceasing. The Scripture says that we are to uh, pray for one another. The Scripture says we're to carry one another's burdens. The Scripture says we're to pray for all of our leaders. Romans chapter 13 says even secular leaders. The Scripture says that we're to pray at all times about everything. We're to kind of live in a spirit of prayer. So what's the most important thing? Pray. Why? Because this work that we're doing, it's not a human work. It's a divine work. It's a heavenly work. Can you save someone? Can I save someone? No. Only God can do that. And so we must beseech the throne of the heavenly Father and ask him to bless us and work through us and accomplish that which only he can do. If you haven't yet got to the place in your life where you recognize that you're really not in control of everything, then you don't need to pray because you're in control of everything. But if you can't control the weather and you can't control the federal government and you can't control whether inflation goes up or down or interest rates go up and down, what makes you think you can control spiritual things? What do you need? You need to be connected to the one who's in control. You need to be connected to God. And we are to pray for our leaders. So here we have a passage that answers and lays out God's expectations for his people as they follow their spiritual leaders. I wonder what your journey looks like if you were to take those nine uh, points out of Hebrews uh, 13. Well, how would you grade yourself? Would you say, oh, I, I got four out of nine, I got five out of nine? Is there some problems there in your life? Maybe it, maybe it has to do with uh, being a doer of the Word of God. Maybe it has to do with getting your eyes off the bad and starting to do the good. Maybe it has to do with your tithes and offerings and giving. But God has spoken to you this morning. Will you do what he asks you to do? I'm going to ask for every head to be bowed and every eye to be closed. I know this morning I didn't really talk about salvation. If you're here and you've never given your life to Christ, that's where you start. You can't be a follower of Christ until you're a child of Christ. So that's the beginning place for you. Maybe you're here this morning and you know the Lord's telling you to follow him in the obedience of baptism or you want to join Emmanuel. we love for you to make those decisions. But this morning, I spoke to those who already know the Lord, already call Emmanuel home. This is your place. What is it that we're supposed to do together? We're to follow. Follow Christ. Follow the leaders that he's given us. And so I wonder, is there a place in there Did the Holy Spirit speak to you and say, hey, this part of your life, it doesn't look very submissive. Here's a part where you're in rebellion. 
Here's the part where you're more concerned about who's the boss of me than you are obeying Christ. Did he speak to you about your journey, your path, and how, the, how he wants to bless you? Won't you say yes to him? Father, you do know every heart. You do know every journey. You do know every path. You know our prayer requests before we ever pray them. And in your word, you've said, this is what I desire of my people, that my people who are called by my name will look like this. And so, Father, we ask your forgiveness for the times when our fellowship didn't look so good, when we were more concerned about ourselves as individuals and our, and our selfishness played out instead of caring for others. And now, Father, we, we come to you anew and afresh we ask for you to do the work that only you can do. Change us, remake us, remold us into the image of your Son. And if you'll do that, we promise to give you all the praise, all the glory. For yours alone is the majesty. We pray it in the wonderful name of Jesus. And all of God's people said, Amen. One last illustration that I hope will help you understand the difference between leadership and followership and what's really, really important. Is it the leader that makes the follower? Or is it the follower that makes the leader? Here's what I want you to do, Pastor. Just walk around the stage anywhere you want to walk. Now, if he just walks and he thinks he's leading, but no one's following him, he's not leading anybody. He's just going for a walk. By the same token, even if he doesn't want to lead, if I choose to follow him and I follow him wherever he goes, then he becomes a leader by my followership. Do leaders create followers? No. Followers create leaders. Go and follow Christ. Have a great day. God bless you. Thank you for listening to audio from Emmanuel Baptist Church, located in Billings, Montana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Emmanuel, please visit us online at www.myemmanuel.net.